Hello and welcome back to Tiempo Talks. I'm your host, Perla Gomez. Today we have a very special episode in which we will be discussing one company's CVT Nuggets transition to microservices. We have with us today Nuggets CTO Sean Sullivan, Tiempo's COO Mike Han, and Tiempo's Director of Solutions Engineering Angel Almada. It will have their turn to discuss the in and outs of CVT Nuggets transition as well as the role they played. Some of the questions that we'll be answering this episode are, are microservices right for your company? How do you know you're ready and what does ready look like? Why do so many companies fail? What are best practices and how can you hit a home run? So Mike, can you start off by explaining to our audience a little about what microservices are and what businesses can hope to achieve by utilizing this approach? So we're going to take a quick stab here at really defining what we look at as microservices and how this ends up working. Ultimately, what this is about is a very flexible development environment that allows you to take features and develop them independently of one another and then get them deployed independently of one another so you can ultimately piece them together to make a large-scale product. So some of the big advantages of moving to microservices in this world is really around leveraging multiple programming languages and multiple persistence layers, which is also known as polyglot programming to kind of get you to that point in time. So instead of sitting down and going, I want to do everything in .NET Core, everything's got to live in .NET Core, one of the ways that microservices can kind of help you from that definition perspective is you could potentially develop things in different, different languages and different environments. And from this definition around from the business perspective, Sean's going to tackle the technical stuff, but instead of large-scale releases that potentially take you months to track requirements, develop, and deploy, the, the deployment and development in a microservices environment allows a business to generate revenue quicker from your investments in development. So instead of waiting and doing a quarter release or a, or a every six months release, you can develop and release every two weeks, every month, every day in some instances. So it really kind of helps you take advantage of the business requirements around that. Mike, it sounds like there are several benefits to making the transition to microservices. Can any organization or application take this approach? Or are there some considerations that should be made before an organization decides to make this shift? When is microservices a good fit? Microservices or moving to microservices really not the right decision for every business. So I want to really focus on the business objectives here. So the investment required to make this for an organization is significant. It's not just, hey, I'm going to take this five-person development team and move them over here and boom, they're going to do microservices. It requires an investment. And one of the overarching questions that you really have to understand from your business perspective is, will your customers see a benefit in this investment and how will that translate into additional revenue for your company? Just rewriting an old application may not make any sense. You might want to look at other performance or feature improvements that you can gain only through the microservices that you couldn't do in your old monolithic application. And are there competitive advantages to doing it? Are there things that you could get to market quicker? Are there development processes you can get done faster that'll help you get out in front of the competition? Let's jump over to Sean real quick. Sean, can you tell us a little about CBT Nuggets, why the organization decided to make the shift to microservices, and how that move benefited the business? So with our business, what drove us to you know, move to microservices? So to, to set the stage on that, you know, it was a, a monolithic application built wholly on .NET with a very large Postgres database. 
And there's a lot of value into that. Um, you know, the, the business survived quite healthily for, for many years with this. But what we saw was not just uh, the expense of running this, you know, as we're scaling out to more and more customers and learners, but also the way we wanted to scale the application for, for usage. And, you know, to, to scale a monolith can actually be quite expensive. It requires a lot of uh, horsepower when you're looking at a lot of concurrent sessions and threads accessing the same resources and what have you. On the scalability end, we were also looking much at the team growth that was before us. So, you know, around the time we undertook this venture, we were around a dozen developers, but we knew that we wanted to double, triple, quadruple in size of our development team to tackle the aggressive roadmap ahead for our product's benefit. And so with that, when we looked at the, the monolithic architectures, the cognitive overhead of working in that system that was before us, and within that, you know, just the, the issue of you touch code in one place, how is that going to affect something in another place? And Mike already spoke to the ability to deploy frequently and often. Uh, furthermore, the technology selection. So .NET is a technology that serves quite well. Postgres is a database persistent layer that serves quite well. But there's other things that we knew we wanted to do and other technologies that we wanted to take advantage of. So microservices could really offer a way for us to make that happen. Holy, just kind of bring it home, it, it was the roadmap ahead and scaling the organization in such a way where we could make that happen so we could better the product for our learning experience. Thanks, John. Now, I know from our discussions before the show that one of CVT's business goals was to move into more of an enterprise market. Did your move to microservices facilitate some of that feature development and help CBT meet those business goals? Yeah, you know, I would say so. If, you know, speaking back to the product attributes, the reporting aspect of our, of our product was quite valuable in that when you're you know, spending money to train your team, you really want to receive some feedback on what they're training on and, and how they're benefiting from that. That aspect of our system was something that we knew we needed to give a lot of love to. And so by, by using this microservices approach, we were able to um, kind of in, in quarantine, I'll use that word, work on this reporting system off to the side so it was not affecting the rest of the platform development. And then as we could start to derive value from, the, from what we were doing on that side of things, we could start to take advantage of that on the product, so hooking into that. So that's just one, one example of how we, we found that to be advantageous. Thanks, Sean. Now, we've talked a little about CBT Nuggets and some of the challenges they were facing that led them to consider this migration. Now, I am curious, Mike, what things do companies need to get right in order to make this transition a smooth one? There's three things that you've really got to nail to get this right. The first one is really around product management. So when you're looking at prioritizing decoupling or you're looking at modules that you want to move first or an or a, or a order, if you will, that you're going to attack this monolith to move it to microservices, everything's got to be driven around business value. And more so than that, it's also got to be driven around the, the feature sets that are going to bring the most value to your customers. And then from the product management side, really setting the expectations of what that's going to entail, getting the business buy-in from the top of the organization all the way through the development team, and maintaining the discipline around that product management on how you're going to execute that. The second thing you got to nail is really the architecture and the environment. And I'm only going to touch on this very briefly because Sean's going to really hit on this. But you want to look at your capacity and your utilization and really understand the desired end state 
of where you're trying to get with your product and then look at the steps that you can take to get there. And then the third area is really around DevOps, continuous integration, continuous deployment, getting feature sets and getting product releases to market quicker to get the return on investment of your development dollars. This really has to be nailed. We've seen a lot of areas where we can get the first two right, but then when it comes time to deploy and get it to AWS or get it to Azure or get it into a, a data center, private cloud hosting or what have you, the whole project stalls there. And then what ends up happening is you end up not being able to get it into production and get the business value, which then starts getting you questions up and down the organization about why you couldn't get to that point. You mentioned that many organizations struggle to get microservices to production because they couldn't quite get the DevOps component in place. What are some other specific challenges you have seen organizations face that they should take extra care to avoid? So sometimes when you go through these journeys, you learn as much about what went wrong as you did about what went right. And so really taking a look at staffing your current team, your, your current processes. Do you have an agile methodology? Do you have a waterfall approach? We really believe that the way to execute the microservices path is really to morph into more of an agile process and really be able to execute in a scrum agile environment. Um, you know, CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment around the DevOps, a lot of organizations, we see that sitting in their own little silo. And like I said, Sean's going to hit on this a lot more about how that culture has to be integrated throughout the entire team. Um, the decoupling side, we've worked on a couple of engagements where what to decouple first was an internal decision, and they went down a path, and they started doing that, and then they brought it out to the business and brought it out to the user base and said, hey, look at this great thing. We've got this new service implemented in microservices, and everybody was kind of like, all right, yeah, whatever. You know, so it wasn't really driven from the outside in. It was more driven from the inside out, which kind of gets me to the, the internally driven requirements. We can't stress enough that you've got to have a lot of market validation to understand what your customer stakeholder sees the most value in your organization, and then an executive management buy-in to understand what the, what the cost and the investment is going to be to make this trans transformation. Because if either of those two are misaligned, you're going to end up putting stuff in the market that people don't care about, or you're going to end up putting stuff in the market that costs you way more than what the business value derived from to get it there. So this thing can take a lot of, a lot of looks, a lot of feels, and have a lot of different ways to approach it. But understanding your DevOps, your CICD, your architecture, and your product management, if you can nail those three things, you're going to have a much more successful outcome. Thanks, Mike. Now, Sean, let's dig in a little into how CBT actually approached the migration and how you were able to conquer a lot of these challenges that Mike was talking about. So going back to kind of where I left off, the, the system as a monolith was just too complex to manage. And that comes down to, I, I spoke to cognitive overhead and the scaling of the application. But let's talk about deriving business customer value from what, what it is you're building, the software you're building. And to me, that begins with how often are we able to deploy and actually ship that product enhancements or additions. And what we found was with this monolithic application, the deploys were sometimes a tightrope act. You were concerned about, okay, I'm, I'm going to ship what we think change, which a seeming, seemingly innocuous change could have ripple effects. We've all seen that happen before where 
you know, if the payment system's rock solid and nothing's really changed with that for four to five months, you know, does adding a feature over here need to affect that? And the answer is, well, ideally it shouldn't because we don't want to have that in our head when we're pushing that out the door. And so with that, that's why we call it the impact of single code change being wide and, you know, sometimes often unknown. So the product, you know, we need, we need to be able to scale this in such a way as well with it, both the team and the, the technology to a standpoint that we can, we can get that value and we can anticipate the, the product growing with the customer base. So how do, we, how do we begin? How do we start to really look at this transformation? How can we move a monolith to microservices? To me, it starts with understanding the system and knowing where those true pain points are. And then we keep talking about scalability, but in our case, the pain points where we had certain systems that design the way they were in this three-tier architecture going to a coupled to a single database, the, we were having some opportunities around stability. And with that, we, we looked at certain aspects of our system. We said, well, now, if we were to break this out, do this in a new tech stack, we can do this in a more effective way and if that were to continue to encounter opportunities after it gets split out, that's not going to affect the other parts of the system. And so starting to kind of look at those pain points and where are the places where, you know, we're kind of falling short of where we want to be from a stability and experience standpoint and, and really going after those to re-architect. With us, we really began with our authentication authorization system because we knew that was a critical piece that we needed to calibrate correctly to the way we wanted to build our future systems. So we tackled that. We went after some systems around our digital rights management and how customers, you know, their licensing of their subscription, that sort of thing, and started to break those out and, and put those in a way where we could, you know, evolve those on a totally different trajectory than the rest of the core business systems that were already well established. You know, one of the ways that you can do this, you hear commonly in microservices, something called the strangler pattern. And the idea there is you don't have to wholly cut off the systems that are within your monolith, but you build these ancillary systems that are starting to, we'll say, starve the oxygen so they, they no longer have the value they once had. And so you, you start to kind of tease those out. Another way that you can really get this going is to establish what are the contracts and protocols going to be for communicating with these services and really make sure those are well-defined. You don't necessarily need to be too concerned as a team working with a, another service of, of what's happening within the confines of that service, but as far as how do you, how do you communicate with that, what is the API and what is the, the protocol, is it HTTP, et cetera, and, and how's that going to work, make sure those are well-documented. So moving on to the best tool for the job um, part of the conversation here. So this is to me, this is one of the major benefits of microservices, and that's, you know, kind of going back to that statement of if you have, if you have a team that really knows the technology strongly and you want to take advantage of them, you can do such. You don't, not everybody has to play necessarily in the same pool. In our case, we had a .NET application, but we also had access to a lot of really strong JavaScript developers. And at that point in time, <clears throat> excuse me, Node.js had really come on the scene as a really strong um, application language for, for, for doing these types of services. And we didn't have to, as Mike mentioned, we didn't want to go off and go dark and rewrite this whole application, come out a year later with a, here's our whole new, you know, new and improved CBT Nuggets platform. No, we wanted to go on this evolutionary journey. 
And by taking a microservices approach, we could build that auth system or that license licensing system I spoke to and do those in a completely separate language, albeit with a very defined protocol and specification for how we're going to communicate with that service. But, but the .NET stuff could live on. We could still be deriving value of that day-to-day and continue to evolve that, but at the same time be leveraging other expertise and, and knowledge to build these other systems. Now, when we ask about, you know, why Node.js, um, so I already hit on the expertise thing. Another thing with Node that's very valuable is the concurrency model with the event loop. And for anybody who doesn't under, understand or, or know the technology there, the idea is, is Node isn't great for CPU-intensive operations, but, but when it comes to stitching together a lot of disparate sources, doing that, that I.O., it really exceeds at, at making that happen in a very effective, efficient, um, scalable manner. So we, we saw a lot of benefit to that. Going back to the data store end of this, you know, at CBT Nuggets, we're very much a right tool for the job kind of shop. So when we look at what we need to build a solution, well, you know, not everything is going to fit in the same database. Some things are great for relational models. Some things are great for more than NoSQL. You know, is it something that we can write those records and, and perform those right intensive operations ahead of time, kind of have that materialized views uh, approach, or we could potentially, you know, put everything in the relational model and then let the database, you know, handle the, the normalization of all that for us. And microservices, the, the point being here, microservices gives you the opportunity to make those decisions on a case-by-case basis from the outset of your, your designing your architecture, designing your system. You don't have to just lock into one technology and, and just, you know, cling to that all the way through. You can be evolving, uh, evolution. Is a, is a very, um, you know, you hear evolutionary architecture has kind of become the prevailing wisdom of the day, and that is, you know, from the outset, we're not going to try and get it a thousand percent right. We're going to put ourselves in a position to you know, take advantage of the things as they emerge and, and leverage those. Another important thing to speak to here is, obviously, when we talk about three-tier architecture, the view, view where is a very important part of that with us as we're moving to these services and kind of getting away from the old model of, of what the .NET monolith had given us with the Vueware, we really wanted to take advantage of, you know, more of a, a pure client-side approach with our web side of our platform. This is not speaking to the mobile mobile end. So with the web side of it, we looked at React.js as, as the clear winner for a few reasons, and we you know, vetted a, a lot of other different approaches here. but. You know, first and foremost is the fact that React offers these really nicely encapsulated components that allow you to, first of all, you're going to hear me say this again, reduce the cognitive overload of working on a, a piece of code, but also gives you some uh, code reuse capabilities. So, for instance, at cbtnuggets.com, we have a common component library. We're able to really kind of leverage those through different applications or different product aspects. The DOM abstraction is something that's important to, to point out. You know, anybody who's done web development for a number of years knows that the browsers come with their own interesting things when it comes to compatibility and performance. And in a lot of ways, this helps alleviate that. And in addition to that, you know, frameworks are always a really hard thing to select because all of them want to do different things, have different ownership. Some of them take on everything. Some things don't take on the things you would want. Here I, you know, threw out that quote, give them the finger, they take your arm. I think that's very apropos. React doesn't do that, kind of lets you make decisions down the road. 
Shannon, let me step in here real quick with a question. You just covered a lot about how you approach the Coblendi application and some of the technology decisions that you had made. Um, earlier, Mike indicated that DevOps was a really critical piece to this puzzle and that the whole thing falls flat if you can't get this part right. Was DevOps a big part of your success? And if so, what was uh, CBT's approach? I think to me, this is probably the most one of the most critical things to get right if you're going to do microservices right. And that is, we hear this term DevOps, what does it mean? You know, for me, it's, it's a cultural shift. So DevOps means no longer living in the days of the developer writes code, throws it over the wall, and an operations team ships it. The idea here is that the developers not only build it, but ship it and also monitor and observe it while it's out in production. And so it's their baby. It's their baby from birth out into the wild, and, and they, they understand the way it's operating top to bottom. And that just provides so much value because, you know, no longer having this, this idea of ownership going to, excuse me, ownership going to the uh, operations team where, where they're on pager duty. It's the people that are actually writing the code who are, responsible for the understanding of that application. Going back, taking a step back here, the, the shipping aspect of this is very important. Mike talked about CICD, um, and the point here is as we're building these systems and we're adding value continually, we want to be shipping that continually. We don't want a lapse in time where you know, something has been built and it hasn't been brought out to, to the customer. So the idea here is by putting smaller changes into production more frequently, we're going to decrease the volatility and the hesitancy. You know, we've, all been, we've all seen before where there's two weeks worth of code changes backed up in a branch, but to get that out is a little bit of uh, trepidation because, well, there's all these things that have changed. Well, if you can reduce that cognitive load of shipping a change to just a minimal piece, then it's less likely something is going to um, not be optimal once it gets out there because you're going to, going to know exactly what changed. It's going to be a smaller thing to, to have to you know, digest, and the customer gets it sooner, so we all win. In order to do this, really there's this, this undertaking of building. You have to build a pipeline. You have to build a really solid pipeline where the, you know, the cultural change of, of maybe a master branch uh, that everybody's continually merging into. There's other uh, philosophies on how to, to manage your code versioning around this. But the, idea, the fact of the matter is, is, as developers are checking in code and we're executing tests against them to make sure everything is rock solid, you know, going from that moment of check-in to that moment of shipping is, is seamless. It's a continual pipeline happening. And then here and again, we kind of hit on the, you know, the engineering organization. How, you know, I'm, I'm going to harp on this again, but it's not just the ops team to keep it up and running. The ops team is not who, the ones who should get the call at 2 a.m. And our organization, our, our DevOps team, is really responsible for building this, this platform that the developers are using to, to publish their applications onto. So a little bit of a shift of the days of emailing an artifact to a member of the ops team and then they, they SSH into a server and push it up there to more of uh, this, this pipeline of checking code to GitHub, and then have that go through a peer review, have some tests executed against it, and then it makes it its way out to production for the customer. Thanks for going into that, Chan. In addition to DevOps, 
Based on CBT's experience through this process, what wisdom would you impart to others looking to take on their own monolithic to microservice journey? So, you know, coming out of all this to where we are now in our journey, which is you know, painfully close to being done with the migration out of the monolith, I just wanted to kind of call out some things that going into this had been, had been spoken to, to me as requirements that you know, we need to take seriously and what we have found really truly should be considered requirements. And first and foremost is don't start chopping up a monolith until you absolutely understand the domain problem. So in order to build a service, there's a lot of decisions that are going to have to be made around where the boundaries are, what entities live in what service. There's a, a fantastic book called Domain Driven Design that speaks a lot to this. And you have to really look at your product and look at how you're going to divvy up the aspects of it into these services. And that could have to do with a number of things. It could be uh, team organization. It could be uh, geographical pot potentially. It could be, um, let's say, the way it needs to scale or even looking at the roadmap ahead and what the evolution is going to be like. So if you have one aspect of your product that's going to be changing a lot over the next year, you're probably going to want to consider getting that into its own isolated service so that the changes that happen in there only happen within that and are exposed through that nice clean protocol um, and contract that I spoke to earlier. Furthermore, and Mike hit on this a little bit earlier, but we, we have to get away from architecture being this uh, ivory tower, you know, we're going to plan out with UML diagrams what we're going to do for the next two years, send it off to a team and build it. No, we have to take the approach of getting the right personnel onto our team so that we can allow an evolutionary architecture, we can allow the use cases and the product needs to emerge over time and really take that agile approach to what it is that we're building. You know, let's not try to plan the whole thing out in advance. Just kind of make sure that we don't get backed into a corner. We're always able to absorb the, you know, the needs of the business and make sure that the capabilities can be put in place to, to build out the product that way we want. Conway's Law is something that you'll always hear brought up um, when you speak about microservices. And you know, the best, most terse way I can explain that is if you ask uh, three teams to build a compiler, you're going to end up with a three-phase compiler. And really, it comes down to the way that teams naturally communicate and, once again, go to that, that protocol and, and those channels through the contract through which they're communicating. And so you really, microservices is a cultural thing. It's, it's an organizational thing. It has to do with the way the teams are divvied up, the way that the personnel um, works together. Obviously, we spoke about the CI/CD pipeline. That, it's paramount that that is in place and is correct, and DevOps culture is understood from the top, from the executive suite, all the way down to you know, the people working in the trenches day in, day out to make it all happen. And it's that ownership, the empathy of being bought in on it together. Observability is something that is absolutely critical, and the reason why is because in a lot of ways we're making our system so much more complex. You know, we're, we're, we're giving up the benefit of having a singular application with perhaps a singular database, and we're moving to a, a whole lot network of communication and systems that are going to have their own, um, you know, the, their own behaviors. They're going to 
fail in different creative ways that we've never seen before. And so observability means making sure you have the right probes and the right monitoring notifications in place so that you can understand your system. And this is one place where you will see cognitive load spike with working on your system is if you don't understand that, you know, a change in one system and the way that that egresses information, how that affects downstream systems, if you can't pull that picture up quickly and easily, um, your developers, your team will be spending a lot of time tracking down data flow and error logs trying to understand what happened downstream and who's responsible and where the bug really is. So, you know, for us, we use mechanisms like distributed tracing and um, to, to put together a logical stack of data flow and, and how the system works together. So you really end up with this interesting graph network of, of your, your, well, your bytes and your requests and how everything's working together. And finally, the resilience against network failure goes without saying. As you're spreading things out, they have to communicate somehow. That's going to be the network. And the network is unreliable. You know, always remember that. That's why I call out the CAP theorem. That always comes up here. And, you know, in some cases, you're going to choose consistency. So the data either needs to be consistent or available. Um, you have to choose within the, you know, light of a network partition how, how you're going to make that happen. And so that's absolutely important to keep in mind. That's going to play into the observability, and then you have to make choices as you're building your system how you, how you react to the different types of failures you will see. Sean, I know that CBT Nuggets partner with Temple Development to assist you through this process. Could you tell me a little about the role Temple played, and what was your, I guess, decision criteria for specifically selecting Temple as a partner? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean for us, it really, it really came down to, to talent. Um, you know, we, we're great at building CBT nuggets and our, we were finding a lot of challenges when it came to scale out our team, finding the personnel that could really help make this happen, the expertise as well. So with that, the, you know, the appeal of having a team that was in the same time zone, if not one or two time zones off, which, you know, anybody who's worked with teams on the other side of the world, that can always be the challenges. You know, they're awake when you're not, that sort of thing. And so we found a great partner with Tiempo in the fact that the recruitment and the ability to listen to where we wanted to go with our roadmap, the technologies we wanted to adopt, the expertise we needed. As we started to scale out those teams, we really started to see it become evident that we needed more senior leadership with Tiempo. And that's really when the architecture position came into light with us in that partnership as I mentioned before, the, the architecture, we're going an evolutionary approach, right? We're not, we don't just have some master plan that we're looking to implement. So we need people in, in those teams on the ground so that they can make decisions in the moment, keep us moving faster. We don't want to create bottlenecks. We want to create more autonomy through these teams. And with Tiempo as a partner, we really found that possible. Thanks, Sean. I'm interested to hear about this engagement from Tiempo's perspective. So, Angel, from what I understand, you were in charge of leading the engagement and bringing together CBT's internal teams with Tiempo's on-scrum teams. What were some of the primary challenges that you helped overcome to bring both of these groups together? Absolutely. Uh, well, the challenges were, uh, well, I would like to talk about a prerequisite to engage into, into this type of, of uh, relationship, which is having a cultural affinity be between the both companies. 
uh, once we are on the same page about this cultural affinity, I'm talking about from uh, the way we engage with our employees up until the way we execute on our, in our operation with the cutting standards and all that, uh, once we have that affinity and in, in a sure agile-based software development process, everything else is very similar to any other challenge of having a distributed team all, uh, within the U.S. Uh, and those are mainly on communication. And the communication comes from the strategy to the execution. The communication comes from being on the same page about the strategic initiative from the, from the company up until the execution of each one of the stories. And uh, one of the easiest ways to solve these challenges is to have a product representative in uh, your vendor, in this case in Tiempo. And that helps uh, to translate those initiatives into the actionable backlog for the teams and also being on the same page about the practices on product management, such as having a robust acceptance criteria so we start talking about the same language between those two teams. Great. Thanks, Angel. Now, back to Mike and Jean. I want to direct this question to both in hopes of capturing both of your perspectives for our audience today. How is that you see microservices being applied during a transition from a legacy system? So a lot of that to me, when I see it from, from my seat, kind of ties right back in with the business requirements and, uh, and what you're trying to accomplish as a company and what you're trying to accomplish as a, as a providing value to your customers. You know, you've heard a, little, a lot of stuff today. And what I always say is developing software products, getting them into production and getting people to buy them is hard work. And, and so this transition has to be applied to that legacy system that you've been generating revenue from, how do you continue that and what's going to be the business value that you're going to be driving from it? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, with any transition, what you're going to find is you have, you know, some parts of your system are just, they're there. They, everything's solid. It's humming, well-oiled. And the things that you want to evolve on, you can really start to leverage microservices to make that possible. Like you said, Mike, sooner, faster, and without volatility to the existing system. And so that's really what we've employed a lot of at our organization. You know, anytime you're looking at legacy code or legacy systems, I always speak to the stories behind the if statements. And as any developer knows, when you're fixing bugs, there's all kinds of just little nuances through that, through that, throughout that system that have been accounted for. And so to take all that and throw it out the window just because it's legacy is the wrong approach because there's so much inherent value in there that's been derived through time. So we want to continue to leverage that, but continue to evolve the system quickly and, and allow ourselves to be agile. So it's really about finding the right way to draw those boundaries. Sean, I think I just have one more question for you before we call this a wrap. After your experience going through this transition, I'm curious, uh, what's your recommendation for organizations that are really just getting started? Would you recommend beginning with a microservices approach if, say, they were developing a brand new application, if it was relatively complex? Yeah, it's, it's, really, a, it's really a challenge because, as I just mentioned, the, the challenge is drawing the boundaries, right? So microservices as it is, I, I think a service-oriented approach to building a, a product is definitely the way I would go. What I what you would probably find with my recommendation would be the services would end up being a little bit uh, more encompassing than they would be in a place where you absolutely know what your business cases are. 
So in the case of CBD, CBT Nuggets, we have a 20-year-old organization with all these processes and entities and systems. So it's going in and becoming domain expert and understanding how all that works together. Once you put in that investment, you really it presents itself how that needs to be split up. But when you're building something and say you only have, you know, you have kind of your core systems around user identity, then maybe some payment systems, and maybe, uh, you know, whatever the couple features or few features are your organization will originally have in that new product, you know, I would, I would say in that case you're going to end up with fewer, larger services, but you're going to build it in such a way that over time they can start to, um, you know, think of, think of like uh, cells in a Petri dish or something, start to split <laughs> apart or something, you know, and, and that's what's going to happen as, as things evolve and as the patterns emerge. Now, say you, to use Mike's example, say you do build uh, a payment, a larger payment service, but then there's certain parts of it that are not scaling as well as others, or you're seeing a little bit interesting um, patterns around volatility or fault, faults happening there, you may decide to kind of split that piece off to be its own thing so that that can you know, absorb that in a different way. And, and really, all, all this comes down to is just kind of letting the patterns emerge and reacting to them, but all the while creating a system such where you can do that with those defined contracts and, and protocols that um, really makes it easy to, to play in the system as a product developer. I would like to thank all of our guests for coming on the show today. I would also like to thank you, our audience. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to receive updates for future episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or most other major podcast platforms. Each episode will also be posted on our website, tempodev.com, and each new episode will be announced on social media at Tempo Software on Twitter and at Tempo Development on LinkedIn and Facebook. You can also email us to podcasts at tempodev.com if you have any questions, comments, or you have a topic you would like us to cover next. Please tune in next month where we will be discussing cloud infrastructure and agility with our guest, Jorge Millán. Until next time, I'm Perla Gomez, and you've been listening to Tempo Talks.